From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. One of the things you'll notice about working with spelt is that it comes together immediately, much more quickly than wheat does. On this week's show, we take a look back at a kitchen session with Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery, where he shares the secrets of his soft pita bread. And Harvest Public Media has a story on one more unfortunate consequence of all the flooding in the Midwest this year. Mosquitoes. That's all just ahead, so stay with us. Renee Reed has our food news this week. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate. A new lawsuit outlines an alleged conspiracy among U.S. chicken producers to keep wages low. Most of the affected workers are immigrants working in dangerous meat-cutting jobs. The lawsuit names 18 processors including Tyson Foods, Purdue Farms, Pilgrim's Pride, and the Indiana-based data company Agristats, Inc. Purdue and other companies in the suit have denied the allegations. The case is rooted in interviews with former employees and was filed on behalf of three former workers. The lawsuit was filed in Baltimore Federal Court and is requesting class action status for hundreds of thousands of workers. The case describes secret annual meetings since 2009 among human resources and payroll departments in a hotel in Destin, Florida, where they discussed pay and benefits for production line and maintenance workers at about 200 plants. The suit claims the companies used consulting agencies to swap detailed wage information. A 2015 Oxfam report said poultry workers suffered occupational illnesses at a rate five times higher than other U.S. workers in 2013, with 72% reporting significant work-related illness or injuries. The report said workers earn low wages around $11 per hour, with the real value of wages declining almost 40% since the 1980s. In June this year, the Department of Justice intervened in a price-fixing suit against the country's largest chicken producers. The agency asked the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois to halt a class-action suit filed by food distributor Mapleville Farm. Mapleville accused firms of employing Agristats, one of the companies named in the wage-fixing case, to fix prices. In four years, German farmers, gardeners, and landscapers will no longer be able to use the ubiquitous weed killer Roundup. Germany's Environment Ministry announced this week it will continue tapering use of the chemical glyphosate in 2020 in preparation for a total ban three years later. Austria and 20 mayors in France also passed glyphosate bans earlier this year. Glyphosate is the main chemical compound in the weed killer Roundup. Roundup was developed by the agrochemical company Monsanto, which was purchased by German company Bayer in 2016. Bayer publicly disagrees with the ban, saying that 40 years of scientific assessments by competent authorities have determined that glyphosate can be used safely. Though the EPA says glyphosate doesn't cause cancer, the World Health Organization concluded in 2015 that it probably does. Around 11,000 lawsuits against Bayer are pending, claiming glyphosate caused plaintiff's cancer, most often non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
Three of those lawsuits have awarded the plaintiffs massive sums of money, including more than $2 billion to a California couple in May. That's all the news I have this week. Thanks to Chad Bouchard and Taylor Killow for those stories. Thank you, Renee. My pleasure, Kate. This year's catastrophic flooding has created hard times for many in the Midwest. But it's been great for mosquitoes. And with increasing temperatures and flooding events expected in coming years, the region may become a more welcoming place for hungry pests. As Alex Smith reports for Harvest Public Media, some experts say we're not ready to deal with the diseases they may carry. In August of 2012, Rebecca O'Sullivan hosted a party in Wichita, Kansas. She had just a single glass of wine, but woke up with what felt like the worst hangover imaginable. She thought it was the flu, but soon found out she'd contracted West Nile virus, which can affect the brain. I lost the ability to count. I couldn't do basic addition and subtraction. I just remember thinking, I'm going to collapse at work. (laughs) She had to leave her job in the aerospace industry, and her health got worse. A neurologist later discovered that the virus had caused meningoencephalitis. West Nile virus, which first appeared in the U.S. 20 years ago this summer, showed up this year in the Midwest before its typical season, not long after the floods hit. You can see here this overview of all that water and then that sand through the trees. In northwest Missouri, Lanny Franks drives his truck past fields that look like Everglade wetlands, even months after the heaviest rainfall. Flooding just changes the entire scope of the area. Nothing's ever completely the same again after a flood. But experts say this could become much more common. In the coming years, many parts of the Midwest are expected to see more flooding, and that could also lead to more mosquito-borne viruses, like West Nile. Corey Morin is a health researcher at the University of Washington. Once that flooding kind of resides, you get lots of standing pools of water, then the mosquito populations can really thrive, and you see a real big increase in both the populations and in some cases a disease if there's a pathogen circulating in the area. There's also the possibility of more drought, which could lead to more disease too. Increasing temperatures can also increase the mosquito populations, and that may already be happening. Since the 1980s, the mosquito season in the Midwest has increased by roughly 18 days. But critics say that Missouri and other areas in the Midwest aren't taking the right approach to handle the problem. The key with addressing these particular illnesses is to be proactive. Dr. Oscar Allen is an epidemiologist with the National Association of County and City Health Officials. In 2017, the organization polled health departments about how well they follow federal mosquito prevention guidelines. The group found that almost no local health departments in Missouri met the basic requirements. The same was true in Arkansas, Colorado, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota. Allen says that if cities and counties don't do more on mosquitoes, there's only so much a state can do to prevent these diseases from taking hold. In true comprehensive response, it's a local activity that needs to have that strength and support in order for us to be successful in the long run. Allen says some of these health departments have stepped up their game. Nebraska, for example, produces weekly reports on diseases and mosquitoes by county. But others, like in the Kansas City area, don't do this work. Jackson County, Missouri Health Department spokeswoman Kayla Parker explains that the reason is simple. So we actually just don't have the local resources available to do a program like that. 
State-level efforts in Missouri have been stretched thin, too. After West Nile first appeared, Missouri got about a half a million dollars of federal money a year for mosquitoes. Today, the funding is less than a third of that. Dr. Allen says that even if reports of a disease outbreak led to more funds for health departments, these agencies would be unprepared and unable to help people affected by it. West Nile season typically runs from mid-August through late September. It can be a nerve-wracking time for Rebecca O'Sullivan, whose health and outlook have slowly been improving. The difference is I know that I'm going to be around tomorrow. It might be a little bit better. (laughs) It could be worse, but it's going to be different, and I've got to live the best life that I can. She worries that many neighbors and health officials aren't taking the risks of mosquitoes seriously. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Alex Smith. Hear more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. If you're a regular customer at the Bloomington Farmer's Market or the Winter Market, you're probably familiar with Muddy Fork Bakery. They're the ones with all the beautifully shaped loaves of bread for sale the flaky croissants, buttery hot pretzels, and in the summertime, fresh-baked pizza, including breakfast pizza, with bacon and egg toppings. They're in their 10th year of business, and they've been featured on Earth Eats before. I recently had the chance to visit with Eric Shedler out at Muddy Fork Bakery at their commercial kitchen on their property located on a country road a few miles east of town. Today we're going to make some spelt pita. You can make pita with all kinds of flour. You probably typically think of mostly white flour in a pita, but if you are interested in whole grains, pita is a great way to try out using spelt. Spelt can be a little trickier to work with than wheat. Spelt is a wheat family grain, it's an ancient grain, and it has a little bit of a different dough quality to it that actually lends itself really nicely to being used in pita, pizza dough, flatbreads, because it has a great ability to stretch. It just stretches really easily without ripping, so it makes it easy to stretch things out like pita and pizza dough. It also has a quality in the finished bread or flatbread where it's a very soft sort of spongy texture, which I think is great for pita. So we're gonna make whole grain spelt pitas today. Okay, we're gonna pause here for a quick tour through a few of the wheat types that Muddy Fork uses in their weekly baking. So I have three different kinds of wheat here. I have turkey red wheat, which is an heirloom wheat from the 19th century that was brought to Kansas by Mennonites from immigrating from the Ukraine. And at one time, it was the most popular wheat, most widely grown wheat in the U.S. It almost disappeared and it's sort of having a revival among bakers. So that's the turkey red wheat is the wheat that we use in our whole wheat breads. And it looks like a typical hard red wheat. Turkey red is a winter wheat. As a hard red wheat, it's got sort of small reddish, brownish looking grains. And when we compare that with the ancient grains, those are quite a bit larger. The spelt is a similar color to the wheat red wheats. It's got that reddish brownish color, but it's a lot softer than the turkey red wheat. So we can take a grain and that's the turkey red. It goes crunch. And if you take a grain of spelt, it's it's a lot easier to chew, even though it's bigger. (laughs) (laughs) And that makes it unique because among modern wheats, the soft wheats are lower in protein than the hard wheats, and they are softer to chew 
which is why they're called soft wheats. But the spelt is actually a high protein grain, but it's got a soft texture to it. It is has a, its own distinct lineage because it's an ancient grain. And it has, as we've discussed, it has a different quality to the gluten that makes the dough feel different and behave differently. Now we get to the kamut, which is the biggest grain and it's golden in color. It's also golden all the way through, whereas the other, the spelt and the, and the red wheat are only red on the bran, but once you cut them open, they're white inside. Mm -hmm. This is gold all the way through. And it's related to semolina, which also has that quality of being golden all the way through. The kamut is also very high in protein and iron too, I think. And it's really hard, super hard. <laughs> Was that your tooth or the grain? <laughs> I'm not sure. Let me figure out. <laughs> so now back to the spelt pita dough. And this is freshly milled spelt off of our stone mill, which... If you, if you like our Muddy Fork flour, you can find it at Blooming Foods. If you're into making bread, you may have a little tabletop grain mill at home and you can mill your own spelt. All right, so we're going to start with water and yeast. Um, this recipe is going to make six four-ounce pitas. And I only bake bread doughs by mix and make bread by weight, uh, which is very typical in bakeries. It's not as typical in the U.S. for home cooks to use a scale, but it's easier and more precise than measuring, especially when you get to big quantities, you got to measure 20, 50 cups of flour would be ridiculous. So we weigh everything. So we're going to get 315 grams of water. And then we'll put the yeast in the water for just a minute to let it dissolve. Okay, so we want a gram and a half of yeast. There's a simple rule about weight conversions with dry yeast, and that is a quarter teaspoon is about a gram. Our tablespoon is about 10 to 12 grams. So for a gram and a half, we're going to do a quarter teaspoon, which is one gram, and then a half of that quarter teaspoon. I'm impatiently whisking the yeast to get it dissolve a little faster. Yeast is dissolved, now we're going to add the other two ingredients, which is the spelt flour and the salt. We want 375 grams of spelt. So, spelt's pretty thirsty flour, and you can see there's only a little bit more flour than water in this dough. We can get into baker's math, but the basic idea of how professional bakers describe their recipes is by percentages, so that it can be scaled to any particular amounts. So in this recipe, if you count flour as 100 parts, then the water is 84 parts to that. So we would say this dough has 84% hydration. Everything is measured against the flour. Flour always counts as 100%. And the salt. Six grams of salt, which is about a teaspoon and a third. Let's see how close that is. I'm using a teaspoon and the scale at the same time. I think closer to a teaspoon and a quarter. Get yourself a spoon and stir it up. If you've made bread dough from wheat flours before, then one of the things you'll notice about working with spelt is that it comes together immediately, much more quickly than wheat does. Mm -hmm. It just has this... Um, the gluten has a different quality to it where it just uh, becomes cohesive right away. 
And then it becomes very extensible as it ferments. And when I say extensible, I mean the, the quality of stretching out, flattening out. If you were to take a, a ball of spelt dough and a ball of wheat dough and put them on the table, the spelt, you'd like watch it spread out before your eyes in a way that the wheat doesn't. And I did what I could with my mixing spoon and now I'm sticking my hands in here to incorporate this flour. It doesn't look that sticky. It's wet, but it's not that sticky. He's basically pulling a piece of the dough over the top and kind of pushing it in and spinning the bowl around as he does so. <laughs> yeah, so I like to knead and mix the dough in the bowl rather than on the table, which is sort of a more old-fashioned way to knead your dough because then you keep adding more and more flour as you're working it on the table. All right, that's it. That's our spelt pita dough. We're just going to set it over on the other side of the room and let it sit for a few hours. We'll come back and give it a few folds um, during that time, <clears throat> which helps build strength in the dough. And that looks really the same as my mixing uh, technique, where I'm taking a little piece of dough from the edge of the bowl, pushing it down in the middle, spinning the bowl a little bit, pulling another piece. And when I talk about folding dough, we're just gonna go around the whole circumference once or twice, and that's a fold. So the dough has been mixed, now it needs to ferment. When we come back, we'll divide the dough and get it ready to shape for the pitas. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rash Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at Kate Young, this is Earth Eats, and we're back with Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery. We're making pita bread today using Muddy Fork's freshly ground spelt flour. Here we have pita dough, which has been going for a few hours. It's very puffy. Bubbly. It has a nice grainy, fermenty smell to it. It's a little sticky looking. I'll put some flour on the table and pull it out with my bowl scraper. Maybe a little heavier on the flour than some of the other ones because it's a wetter dough. And we are going to cut this into four ounce pieces for our pitas. I want to just make sure it's not stuck to the table, so I'm going to slide it around on some flour, let it pick up a little bit of that on the bottom side. And then I'll cut with my bench scraper. If you're not familiar with a bench scraper, it's an essential tool for many bakers. It's basically a wide, flat blade, 
rectangle with a handle running the length of one side of the rectangle. And it's not a terribly sharp blade. It's less like a knife and more like a metal spatula. And it's great for cutting dough, scraping your work surface, and moving pieces of dough around on your table or countertop. It's also sometimes called a bench knife. Eric is using it to divide the dough. Got our six little balls there. And now we're going to, um, well, the six little lumps. Now we're going to make them into balls, and we're going to make them as tight as we can. And the more evenly tight you can make the balls, the more likely it is that they'll puff up the way you want them to. So we're going to use a little flour, and we're going to use the same kind of motion we've used before where we pull the dough from the outside to the middle, but now it's on the tabletop instead of in the bowl. And when you get to the end, there's this tightening motion you can do by pushing the seam against the table and rotating and sort of tugging that dough up and inside. If you did this all day, you'd do one with each hand. <laughs> you want to get a little traction with your dough on the table. So you, that's the sound of the dough sliding on the table. This can be difficult to explain without seeing it, but he's basically holding the small piece of dough in his hand and pushing it slightly against the table while rotating the ball. He's tucking the bottom of the dough in and under and creating a nice taut surface across the top of the dough ball. Running out of flour, so I put a little more down here. It takes some practice to get this part down. All right, there we got six nice little round balls of spelt dough to make pitas. Normally, Eric would bake the pitas in their brick oven in the bakery. Which is seven and a half feet deep and five feet wide, and it's a little bit cool right now because we have a weekly heating and baking cycle, and the oven just retains heat for the whole week. When we're finished heating it on Friday night, it's about 670, and at this point on a Tuesday in the middle of the day, it's at 365. And that's too cool for our pita baking, so we took the dough on a short walk up the hill to the house where Eric and his family live. We'll bake the pitas in Eric's regular home oven. You might hear his youngest daughter, Ruth, in the background. So we've got our balls of dough that have been resting for, oh, 30, 40 minutes. And I'm just taking them up off the wooden board, or if you might just have them sitting on your table. And put quite a bit of flour on them because you're going to roll them thin and you'll use up that flour quickly. And I start rolling with a rolling pin, and I'm rotating frequently so that I can try to keep the shape nice and round. Of course, if you have ovals, no problem. <laughs> I'm just used to making things look round. And we want them to be about six to eight inches across, I think. And those don't seem to be springing back that much. No, and part of that is the spelt, and because the spelt has that extensibility to it where it will stretch easily and the rest they had a nice rest after rounding them if you try to roll them right away they definitely would okay we've got two pitas ready to go here after rolling out the pitas he's placed them on what's called a pizza peel it's one of those large wooden paddle shaped tools with a long handle it makes it a lot easier to slide things like pizza or pita bread into a hot oven i've preheated some fire bricks in the oven and you can use a pizza stone the same way. I just happen to have fire bricks lying around from having built a brick oven. And I preheated them at about 500 and now I've turned the oven down to 450. Emulates a brick oven because in, a, in, a, in our wood-fired oven, the bricks are the heat source. So the air is always a little cooler than the bricks. 
So, here we go, sliding them on, closing the door. And then on the peel, you had a little bit of rice flour, yes. but you could use cornmeal or something, or you, you can, recommend? I really like rice flour on a peel. I think it's more effective than regular flour or cornmeal. Um, and it also burns at a higher temperature than cornmeal and wheat. So you don't get that smoky. You don't get as much. Depends how hot your oven is. <laughs> <laughs> our, our bread oven is about 670 when we start baking bread on Friday nights, so... <laughs> Making pita is a fun thing to do with kids, or really with anyone who hasn't lost their sense of wonder. After a few minutes in the hot oven, they begin to puff up as the signature pocket fills with steam. With an oven light and a window, it happens right before your eyes, like a time-lapse video. But it's real time. It's quite magical. All right, I'm going to crack open the door. And it looks like they started to inflate, turning into little balloons in there. So we're gonna just uh, make sure the bottoms get a little bit brown, which they're not yet, and then we'll flip them over. This is a small flatbread, so it doesn't take long. All right, I'm gonna flip these pitas over. I think it's easier with a spatula than uh, using the peel. There we go. I popped them too. <laughs> So now they're deflating. As always, we'll have this recipe available on our website, eartheats.org. All right, so the first two pitas are done. We're taking them out and I like to cool them on a plate with a towel. And so you make a stack of pitas and as you're taking them out and making the stack bigger in between each batch, you bring the towel over it to cover it so that they stay moist and warm and soft. And that's how you make pita. Each batch only takes a few minutes to bake. You can make a whole stack of them for dinner, and the extras keep nicely in a plastic bag for lunch the next day. Check the Earth Eats website for the episode where Eric Shedler teaches us how easy it is to make the perfect filling for your pita pocket. Falafel, from scratch. It's a lot simpler than it sounds. You can find that episode in our archives and if you just need the recipe, it's there too. EarthEats.org Subscribe to our podcast and you'll never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Eric Shedler and everyone at Muddy Fork Bakery.
Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio.